Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Rich. I don't deserve someone like you. But if I ever could, I swear I would love you for the rest of my life. Did you say something? In this episode, we're heading out into the blizzard for the 1993 comedy Groundhog Day, written by Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis, who also directed the film. This large squirrel vehicle was a critical and commercial success, and 30 years on from its original release, it still stands as one of the most frequently referenced romantic comedies. Are we all kept from grabbing what we really want due to being trapped in our own personal groundhog loops? And what is it about the snowballs that fly between Rita and Phil that resonate with so many of us? Le fil Camille, Jemera, Serakem Bonvin. You speak French. Oui. <laughs> so this is another one, isn't it, Rich, where the concept of this movie has really embedded itself into popular culture, hasn't it? It's a bit like when we did um, Fatal Attraction or Sliding Doors. There's something about uh, some of these movies that for whatever reason have something about them that really resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, I think Groundhog Day, everyone knows Groundhog Day as the kind of same thing over and over again. I mean, I've probably said it to you on on many occasions, like, oh, it's like Groundhog Day today. And when you look at the the situation here, when you've got a guy who's stuck in a time warp, and I'll try not to do the dance, (laughs) and, um, and he's stuck in this time warp and he's having to relive the same day over and over again you've kind of got that concept of there's a little bit of science fiction here and the film goes really dark at times and yet ultimately I think what they're really pushing is the fact that as part of his way out the the way that he realizes that he to escape this he has to be the best person he can be and part of that is convincing Andy McDowell to fall in love with him now, I mean, he does a better job of, of than, than Hugh Grant does a year later, but it's still um, in a position where it, it poses some really interesting moral questions mm. in that he has, and I think I read and I did some reading on this, that the common theory is that he's stuck in this time loop for about 10,000 days, which is about 33 years. And so he has 33 years to perfect his, call it a seduction technique, but it, I mean, like having that much time to learn about this woman and everything about her, and there's bits where he starts making these mental notes about what she likes and doesn't like, and, and uses it the next day or the next year or whenever. It kind of makes you think about how far do you go, and when you learn about someone, he's not meeting her for the first time, and and would you find that slightly strange if the shoe was on the other foot? Uh, would I found it strange that it would take someone that long to be able to learn how to get on with me? <laughs> I've worded that badly, haven't I? One of the things when he speaks to her in the diner about things that she wants, and I think she, she lists in order career, love, marriage, children. Uh, so she's in a position where she's this his producer and she seems, I think naive is not the right word, but she, but she seems like she's they're opposites or at least the early part of the film with Phil is that he's this cynical weatherman who is miserable and dislikes a lot of things and she's very much the opposite she's very sort of positive outgoing and chirpy yes and um and and it must be strange if you kind of fold the film on itself in that if they go towards Punk Satorni and he's this miserable, cynical weatherman. And then on the next day, he's the perfect guy because that's the, that, in her reality, that's how it works. In that she only knows him on that day. And he's this guy who helps old ladies with their car and saves ch- his brother from choking and, <laughs> and all these things and, and learns the piano. Mm. Um, so it's a weird kind of position for her. And, and it, it reminded me... And it, this isn't the Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore film that I know we talked about doing, but um, Fifty First Dates, mm, yeah, where 
and I only saw it once, but I think that she does she have like amnesia or something where every day he has to convince her to fall in love with him again. Yes. Or something along those lines. Yes. And again, it's like here, not that he knows it for definite, but he feels like he has to get everything absolutely perfect for this sort of cycle to end. And he goes on all these lovely dates and all these dates that go horribly wrong. They end in slaps and violence and all sorts. So uh, it's an interesting learning curve when you think about how, if you had 30 years to get this right, um, how would you approach it, I suppose? Well, that's the interesting thing. I was wondering how long they've meant to have known each other at the very beginning of the movie. I, is Does he know her at all? Have they kind of just met each other in passing a few times, would you say? I think she's... It comes across that she, if they've not just met, they've certainly only just this is their first kind of working project together. Yes, yes, because that's that's something that's quite striking about that car trip that they're taking together uh, to go on location. You know, she's sort of doing the impression of the groundhog, and he's saying to you know, if you could just look in this mirror and see what you look like when you do that impression, and then saying, you know, do you want some blood sausage? There's some in the glove compartment. And um, his interaction with her, you know, you think um, it, it'd be kind of it'd be a little bit more kind of commonplace, wouldn't it, if if they were people that had been working together for a while. But the fact that this is meant to be the first time that he's working <laughs> with her, his tone with her is so incredibly informal, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he says to. Um, did you sleep last night without me? I bet you couldn't and stuff, you know. So, so it, it's it's not just that, as you say, he's he's cynical and grumpy and stuff, but it's also just that he's he's incredibly he's like, yeah, the new the new producer, she's she's game for you know, I can do sort of just a bit of quiet sexual harassment and uh, you know, being very quite quite rude to it. She's but she seems to sort of like it, doesn't she? Well, I've written this down. Like, does he use his power? for this you know it's, i mean he refers to himself as the talent oh interesting you think this is a pre-me too film a little god i think i've actually written that a little <laughs> bit me too me a little bit me too that's fascinating um you know because it's a bit like anchorman is like, i'm gonna take a run at the new girl here we go yeah and, and and i know circumstance has thrown him together with a beautiful woman who is his boss but he's the kind of senior person with with some authority anyway although i suppose would she be his boss in a way and yeah it's, it's strange because of course throughout the film and i guess around the middle time he's you know when he starts getting very fresh with her and i think at one point he says he loves her mm. just to get her into bed because that's what he does yes it's easy to turn back the clock and say hey, it was 1993 it was fine <laughs> but, um... well I th- but that's the thing though i don't think we're meant to think that he uh, that his behaviour is fine at the beginning mm. of the movie, although it's it's certainly implied that because he's the talent, it's totally kind of to be expected that this guy is going to be really grumpy, give the people working for him a lot of attitude, maybe be putting the moves on someone while he's at it if he gets bored. And, you know, I think all of that is probably quite convincing in some ways <laughs> there's a bit of a when he says when someone points um her out to him i think it's actually willie garson who is tv royalty as a result of being stampered in sex and the city um oh that's where he's yes from. yes and okay. uh, yeah. and um phil says she's fun but not my kind of fun which it's a bit similar to mr darcy when he sees lizzie bennett because he says that she's not handsome enough to tempt me She's tolerable, but not handsome enough to dent me. So, um, yeah, wondered whether it's meant to be a bit of a nod to that. I don't know. When you watch his journey from this guy and all these things he's learning and, and the fact that, and the film's clever enough, and I suppose it, it was probably a bit cheaper to film because they can just use different, refilm the same locations and settings o- over and over again, uh, like with the snowman bit, for example. And... Um, you know, every bit, every day, he seems to make a little bit more improvement. You know, when he um, takes her out and says, right, no, uh, doesn't like fudge, doesn't like white chocolate. And, makes an, and I mean, we see it, I mean, it obviously works when it's um, with the the lady that he pretends he went to school with. Um, yes. And he's, at, you know, one day he's like, because he knows that the next day he's going to get a chance to use it. He's like, who is your English teacher? What school do you go to? And then 
although weirdly that like, he still thinks of, of Rita's name when they're um, getting familiar later on but um, yeah he's um, he's clearly having his cake and eating it and we see he eats a lot of cake <laughs> maybe that's how the idea for Friends Reunited started was <laughs> from someone seeing that to go oh so maybe all you need to do is say that you went to the same school as someone and that will just mean that they will immediately get into bed with you no matter what so maybe we should get everyone together god if only people had your cynical mind (laughs) the most lethal earworm in the world is the pennsylvania polka that plays when he comes in to to the park god it just runs through my head all day long after i see this film i don't know about you yeah, it, it, I, I always remember it because I, I don't think I saw this at the cinema, but I remember a couple of friends went to see it when it came out because it's like, oh, you've got to go and see this film, it's really funny. And then I didn't see it until it came out on video. And, um, and I remember that song and watching it again in prep for this, I think how much of it you remember. And I mean, yes, I've seen it many times. But, you know, there's, there's that. And I know this is a bit sad, but my alarm on my phone is the sound clip from this of i got you babe oh really is it every morning just because it feels like my life is groundhog day i I wake up to the same sound that phil wakes up to every morning that's that's fascinating so is that is that because you do you relate to his persona um probably his predicament Really? Well, I mean, or is it a universal predicament? Oh, maybe, maybe. Oh, God, there's a question. Well, this is the thing. So I I think that there was quite a lot of tension between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray when they were going over the script. I think Bill Murray wanted there to be a lot of rewrites and I think he wanted it to be a pretty sort of, you know, explorative, existential maybe kind of um it's still a comedy but maybe more of a drama and harold ramus wanted it to be more in the romantic comedy genre as far as far as Mm. i understand it and i think that kind of comes across a little bit when you if you've seen the film a a few times i think maybe the first time you see it you kind of watch it on a romantic comedy level and then if you revisit it different things about it kind of leap out at you and make you and make you think about some of those things about yeah, what, what is it? What is it telling us all about the, just the ways in which we're sort of set in our set in our sort of own little narcissistic patterns each day that might make us really quite self-involved and thinking that we're the only person going through a struggle every day when we wake up and really don't want to get out of bed. Whereas, you know, the more he gets to know the people in that town, and the more he sort of experiences different things with them the more he sees that every individual is kind of going through their own narrative, doesn't he? So, um, yeah, because, yeah. the, 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 you know, his world revolves around him. And I guess the fact that he works in television probably was there to kind of ram that home a little bit. I did listen to a podcast about this um, film stories where they were saying that the original script for the film, come it doesn't have that kind of romantic comedy element. Right, yeah. And a lot of it was it starts while he's in the middle of this kind of time warp. Right, I so see. Okay. So he's already there yeah. and he's already living through it. And I, I guess it's never made clear how long he's there. But yeah, this this theory of 10,000 days anyway, probably based on the fact that he learns French and all these other skills that, that he picks up. Does it really take someone that long to become a better person if they're not <laughs> self-centered? <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's easy to say, you know, oh God, he's such a teenager, you know, of, of someone who's in their early forties, but it's, um, but that they can sit there and think it's, it's taken him. How many times has he had to die? How many times he had to kill himself and be arrested and be slapped and probably God knows what else that we didn't see Yeah. in order for him to realize that what he needs to do is kind of be Superman for a day. Although he can only be Superman, can't he, after he's applied himself again, at, you know, so becoming an incredible pianist isn't just something that he was able to achieve in a day. So yeah. it's over this long stretch of time. I mean, in a way, it kind of, it's it's quite good that we're recording this 
in January because I think it makes you think a little bit about stuff like New Year's resolutions and there's always quite a debate isn't there each year about whether people have made them and whether it's a good idea and I think the way this movie emphasizes how long it can take one person to make any real changes in their life sort of proves really that as much as you might want to become a different kind of person, it's actually quite difficult to just decide that the next day you're going to take up all these different habits and become a new version of yourself because inevitably you kind of revert back quite quickly if you try and take on too much too soon and um, it all becomes overwhelming too quickly. And that's because, isn't it? It just like, it, ta- it usually just takes just a really long time to change anything doesn't it just like it takes like a a sort of you know you have to just chip away at something you know which is why when you hear about how incredible sportsmen or musicians have got to where they are you hear about how much they've had to practice and it's mind-blowing yeah it's like pilots with their ten thousand hours of flying and things yeah um, yeah completely and, and and the weird thing is as well is that while you know, we, we don't see in the final day that he knows the French poetry, for example, that he's done all these different things and, and the romance is only part of it. Obviously, part of it is to show Rita how great a guy he is and how well-rounded he is and how selfless he is and, and giving WrestleMania tickets to this young couple and, you know, putting himself up for a charity auction, and uh, which... It's funny, but then it gives us the hilarious scene of his cameraman then doing it afterwards and getting bought for a quarter. Yes, yes, yes. He's very unpopular, <laughs> isn't he, that Bachelor of Fortune Larry? Yeah. yeah, but um, it, you just go to show that he does all this and then the romance sets in. But the only thing I was thinking is that he's gone to all this hassle to get out of his issue, to get out of this time warp he's put a lot of pressure on himself to be the perfect guy for the rest of their relationship. Mm, yes. How, however long this goes on for. Yes. She's going to think, my God, he's amazing. And he's like, oh my God, I can get back to my real life now. It's like a holiday romance of sorts. Well, this is this is my slight thing about Groundhog Day is that I recognise that he, uh, it, you know, there are lots of objectionable aspects to his personality at the beginning of the film. And then you have to have him kind of going on this journey of redemption. And that's the arc of the tale. But it's like at the end of the film, he's stopped being funny. And part mm-hmm. of what she wants from a guy is someone that's funny. She does list that in her long list of attributes. That's one of the things that um, comes up. And... Um, it reminds me a little bit of not, I know we're always making friends references on this podcast, but um, but people talk, don't they, a little bit about the arc of Chandler in Friends, because at the beginning, he's this, you know, very dry, self-conscious, socially awkward, uh, witty character. And then as the series goes on and he gets married to Monica he becomes more and more conventional there are more scenes where he displays his emotions and maturity and on the one hand you can feel pleased that the character you know has sort of maybe found a bit of inner peace and all of that but on the other hand you kind of think yeah he's not as fun though is he (laughs) (laughs) I mean I don't know what you think about that I I mean they've essentially house trained bill murray yeah here and i know it's not always the case but bill murray at this time was seen as that kind of perfectly cynical grumpy kind of guy um you know even going from ghostbusters and and a lot of the other things he'd done he was dry and and this was kind of a, a perfect example of what people think of him and at the end he's this so romantic he helps everyone out and it is weird because he's had to change himself and I know one of the people that they apparently considered for the role was Tom Hanks yeah and you kind of think like Bill Murray essentially became Tom Hanks over the course of the film oh interesting yeah and you kind of think like Tom Hanks at the beginning of the film would have been it wouldn't it wouldn't have been the same and I think what's happened is you've had Bill Murray has turned into Tom Hanks over the course of the film and 
you know, a bit like Big or something. No, you're right, um, because Tom Hanks, it's not that Tom Hanks can't play Grumpy, plays oh, Grumpy yeah. very well in A League of Their Own, a movie that I really mm, like. Cool. Um, mm. But you're right, I think, that Bill Murray has a kind of intrinsic sadness to a lot of his performances, doesn't he, that, um, that really kind of chimes with how funny he is and um, gives him sort of the, that kind of very idiosyncratic Murray thing um that means that when he's being grumpy it feels on a on a kind of different level of grumpiness it feels extremely <laughs> real <laughs> quite chillingly so at times <laughs> yeah yeah it's only a few I mean, flakes yeah <laughs> i mean the, the, the suicides in particular i mean it's like a christopher nolan film yeah completely when you know the amount i mean how many films do you watch where the lead character dies on so many occasions it's like a video game. I mean, maybe what was that Tom Cruise film? Oh, it was Edge of Tomorrow, yeah. where he just dies over and over again. Um, and it's like a video game. It's a bit like that, you know, and yeah. obviously he's just doing it to test the boundaries and, well, hopefully, well, to end it all, really. But at some points, it's good. You know, the time he gets arrested for driving on the train tracks, and it's like, oh, great, I can get away with whatever I want. And then it's like, I can kill myself, and that doesn't end it all. Yes, yeah. You know, the, the good and the bad of it, in that, you know, there's no consequence of anything he does. It's quite an interesting aspect to his relationship with Larry in those bits as well, because he's so sarcastic towards Larry at the beginning of the movie. You see him kind of go, oh, looking, you know, looking foxy tonight, Larry. You know, it's just really, really bitchy towards him so much of the time. And then on one of those occasions where he commits suicide, you have Larry saying to the saying to the nurse he was a great guy I really liked him a lot and stuff you know and um I, I kind of it's it's interesting they have like a moment like that is quite some um, it's quite kind of touching in its own way isn't it because you think like he he was being so horrible to that guy and look at look how how nice he's being to, about him in that moment and things you know um but, yeah. yeah but then I think Larry is I mean at the beginning you know the first thing he says when um when Phil says to these colleagues, I think he calls a hairdo. Is that a major hair? A major, major hairdo. A major <laughs> network is interested in me, and Larry says, "Yeah, the home shopping network." So they've obviously got this relationship going back. Yeah. Um, and I took the bit where where Larry said, "Oh, he's such a great guy" because he got his arm around Rita, and I'm kind of thinking, "Is he saying that to get lucky?" With oh, Rita? that's it. Yeah, no, that that's right, isn't it? Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, he's like, right. "Oh, I'm so I'm so thoughtful," but then. You know, and again, we see him with, uh, what's the girl, what's the woman's name? Nancy. Nancy, does it. And he tries it on with her on numerous occasions as well. Yes, um, yes he does, yeah. So I guess it's just a, a guy thing. Yeah, the men, the men don't, <laughs> the men give the women a really hard time in this film. <laughs> Essentially, men in this film are sex pests. They really are. Larry's in his own time warp. Except for uh, Ned, Ned Ryerson's not a sex pest, he's just an absolute pest. Phil? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Uh, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. Yes, they make it. Um, that I do. I do. I in, do enjoy the Ned punch a lot. I think that <laughs> is fantastic. Fully, fully deserved. Yeah. It's a great. It's a great. Um, he sort of turn around. He turns around to the camera, doesn't he, before falling down? <laughs> it's a very funny moment. But again, he's one of those characters that. In a normal film with a normal kind of timeline, I suppose you can equate this with like Back to the Future or something like that, where you'd literally see him for 20 seconds and that'd be the end of him. Yes. Whereas you get this scene over and over again. And of course, Phil's working out the best way to deal with him. Yeah. And at one point he says, Oh, why don't you call in sick? You know, we'll spend the day together. (laughs) Just to put him off. Um, And in the end, it's like, oh, no, I need to buy a load of insurance off him. So I need to be scanned. Yes. But um, he is an annoying character, but he's used in this in this time frame perfectly because the relation they've obviously go back way back to, to high school. Yeah. And haven't seen each other since. So there's still enough of a, of a chemistry there. Because that's the, the the thing with this film as well, and we we talk about on on most of our episodes about the chemistry between the characters. Yeah, and in this film, the chemistry develops kind of it's very one sided. 
in the development of it because it's literally for everyone else it's one day and for him it's 30 odd years yes so he gets to know rita larry ned ryerson everyone for 30 years mm. and then they know him for that 24 hours it's um it's really weird imbalance that they managed to pull off yes and i don't know it's interesting isn't it at the end when you're thinking about the fact that she has just um been experiencing him for one day you wonder whether she would have been able to get to that point where she's sort of saying yes yes we shall live here i'm sorry what was that again i'm a god you're a god i'm a god i'm not the god i don't think because you survived a car wreck you folks ready to order i didn't just survive a wreck i wasn't just blown up yesterday i have been stabbed shot poisoned frozen hung electrocuted and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal. This feels, as a romantic comedy, actually in a bit of a similar way to Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I don't think that's just because, obviously, that's Andy McDowell as well. Um, is that they're, they're two romantic comedies that feel very much like they're from... Bill Murray and Hugh Grant's perspective and it's like Andy McDowell's character is almost kind of just mythical she's like um in this one it's almost like she's an angel rather than a natural character and then in Four Wins and a Funeral she's not an angel but she's still kind of just more of this more of a kind of mythical character that someone's projecting a cool American person onto and that's so different, isn't it, from some of the other ones that we've done, you know, the, to grab an obvious one that we're always referring to when Harry Met Sally is so equally from the two people's perspectives. And, you know, you know so much about um, Sally and she feels so fully fleshed out. And, you know, she, you know the things about her that could be potentially irritating as well as the things that are endearing and the same goes for Harry. Whereas in this one, it's all about us knowing who Phil is and when it comes to Rita she just seems someone who you know she gives him this long list of credentials that she needs in a partner and as far as we know we just know that she's very nice to people and you know is the kind of person that has so much self-restraint that she can sit in front of a table covered in cake and pancakes and donuts and doesn't eat any of them like that's, that's not a real woman. That's that's not a real person. <laughs> <laughs> that's the moment that she loses me in terms of me not being able to relate to her on it. It's like you're not even gonna have you're not even gonna have like one thing. Oh my god. Like, you know, she's just she's just so dis disapproving. So um I don't know. What do, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I I think because he sees her as his this sounds awful, he doesn't see her as his way out, but he's she is a grail. Yeah. In this, you know, he has to achieve her in order to get to the next level. She's the boss of the computer game where, uh, you know, and again, that, that was kind of in full weddings, wasn't it? She was like the the one. Yeah. That he had to, you know, she will be mine. Um, but it was a little bit strange. And I, I know because of the way the film is in that it's his story. Yeah. And she can't develop it's almost like they, they have to put themselves in this corner where it's like, right, she has to be the same. And yet, I guess it kind of makes it strange when you kind of look at her. And I suppose, you know, she is the same person, but she wants all this stuff. But the guy that she wakes up with, wakes up with, but the guy that she knows in the morning or from the day before is a completely different guy. Like, he's woken up and he's changed. He's joined a cult or whatever yeah. and all of a sudden it's like this guy who was a real prick at work yesterday <laughs> is now the nicest guy I've ever met but, how will he keep this up well this is this is the thing it's um the, these days people call it love bombing and people have to become kind of wary of um what, what, you have to explain that to me uh so I think it's it's basically kind of known as the phenomenon by which a person might you know when they're when they're the beginning of a courtship 
if the person wants to kind of nail the other person down to a relationship, they'll try and uh, figure out all the things uh, that the other person likes. And, you know, they'll say that they like them too. They'll shower them with gifts and affection and, you know, just try and say all the right things in order to be able to just, you know, get into this relationship with this person. And then once they're secure that they've got that person, that person isn't seeing anyone else, or that's when the real person will uncover themselves. Right. Okay. So, um, um, that makes sense. yeah. So it's quite it's quite interesting now because I was thinking as a, as a movie, it's sort of and and actually she one scene that I think is quite good is that one where um it's kind of in the middle of the film where he's pressuring her to sleep over, and at one point he you know he's going oh I've got this I've got a fire I've got you know the poetry I've got you know and and she's saying yeah I think I still want to go and then at one point he says I love you and she says how can you love me you don't know me you know and and you think yeah that's that's the you know that's a that's a good instinct to have about someone that you have only just met and as you say was behaving really differently mm. um the day before and it's um I think they kind of have good examples of that in Eternal Sunshine as well, where somebody, yeah, is trying to force kind of force a relationship onto Clementine and it's they're trying to adopt the characteristics of um Joel, her ex-boyfriend, and there's something about it where she kind of feels in her gut that it's not kind of quite right and that she knows that she's mm. kind of being manipulated. And um yeah. and so that's that's the thing, because um because it's absolutely a romantic idea that someone over a long period of time can evolve and better themselves. And I think that that's what the film hangs on. And that's all, that's all good, isn't it? But it, that, but that's the only thing is that in order for the story to resolve itself, it does mean that Rita has to, within the course of one day, get to a very rushed place of being like yes I'm in a I'm in a really happy relationship with this person that I don't really know and so from her perspective you kind of think oh that's quite that's quite full-on that's quite a lot to take on board in the space of 24 hours or so yeah because I mean from you know not defending him as such but he might and I and he does say it in a way that's like I love you please stay but he's probably known her in his head for months if not years yeah at this point so it is like he's fallen in love with her and he might kind of mean it oh yeah in a weird yeah. way it doesn't come across that way but um because it does come across like please don't go i love you i'll say anything i said i love you and she said thank you <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. did you say you love her yeah what were you trying to get her to do but um but yeah and that's kind of where the balance goes and i know in some of our episodes, we've talked about how long do you reckon this lasted afterwards when the cameras rolling? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, because we didn't, we never got a Groundhog Day two, where maybe they were stuck in the time warp together, or it was just her or something. Yeah, like. yeah. How long do you reckon? <laughs> put you on the spot. How long do you reckon before she realised that this isn't the real him, <laughs> or she's fed up of what is now the real him? Ah, now you see, that's an interesting point because one thing that I think they do show at the beginning of the film is that she doesn't seem to completely dislike his teasing of her at the beginning. You know, he says, do you want, do you want the blood sausage? It's in the glove compartment. And she says, I like blood sausage. And there's a little bit of a kind of sense that she does already kind of like this guy, that he is in with a chance I think so that indicates that maybe if some of this kind of um if some of this sweetness kind of wears off in him and he reverts back to a persona a little bit closer to what he had at the beginning of the movie then maybe she wouldn't be completely averse to that because she does say that she wants someone funny but um although she also says that she wants someone that isn't afraid to cry in front of her and that loves his mum play yeah oh yeah plays an instrument he does that and um <laughs> yeah it's yeah and she always drinks to world peace do you think he could authentically become a person that would do that himself do you think i suppose it depends how many times he had to say it um over those years where he just suddenly believed it yeah I mean, not obviously but the first time we see it he's just doing it because that's what she wants yeah or because well not even that she wants it's just i must say the same thing we must have everything in common yes and and then forgetting or realizing later on that some, if you have too much in common, that's also weird. But 
you know, what new experience is he going to have? Because if they fell in love naturally, would he have felt found French poetry himself another time? Who knows? Oh, um, well, this is the thing. And um, I do, I do really love that scene of him speaking French. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because again, that the beauty of the film is they, there's so much repetition in it. Yeah. Because we've seen the scene already. And then it goes straight into it again, almost shot for shot. Yeah. It's so, it's economical, but it's also because the the structure of the film allows it. Because I know in some films you watch things where that happens. It's like, what? What am I watching? I don't know. Is it all a dream? It is, it's enjoyable to kind of, when you think about how it works. Because I guess, you know, when you meet people, you often probably say the wrong thing or make a, bad joke or oh I do definitely no I definitely relate to all that of just longing yeah. to have certain situations that you could just do again exactly yeah and you just kind of think oh and again going back to the kind of video game thing where the cheat is you save it and then you if you die you go back and start again you get that and he's always I mean he's now you know you long for a second chance mm. and he's on his 10,000th chance or whatever it's um it, it does kind of just make you think about that and I know like something I mentioned before was just that if you had that long to fall in love with someone you know and you had at what point and it sounds awful because maybe this is me being the the Phil Connors the cynical guy at what point would he have gone oh maybe she's not worth it or maybe I fall in love with someone else and maybe maybe I need to try and form a relationship with I don't know Nancy or someone else in the film and then that just kicks off the whole time warp again. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Nancy, uh, justice for Nancy, is what I say. Yes. <laughs> she has a hard time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> she just gets pestered by Phil and Larry. That's her lot in life. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's tough and, um, yeah, manipulated into bed. Oh, Phil. Rita. Nancy. Whatever. One thing in second because I think that that's the interesting thing about dating is that you're very aware. I think sometimes if um I think maybe if if you meet someone and you don't you you feel quite ambivalent, then you might um not necessarily want a second chance. But I don't know if you agree with me, but I think when when you like someone or you care what they think, that is sometimes when you say the stupidest things and when you really would like a, a take two because there's something about your nerves that can really get the better of you and you can just make even those kind of defensive jokes where sometimes you think, maybe I'll try and be flirty by making a joke and then you just say something really rude instead <laughs> rather than saying something flirty <laughs> and you think oh great I've just insulted someone when I was trying to flirt with them damn and um, mm. I think do you think that that's what makes this film so popular it's still one that people refer to and it's not just that monotony of people feeling like they're kind of stuck in their own personal groundhog days do you think it's also it kind of plays out that fantasy that we all have of being able to have another go at something when we fucked it up yeah i mean maybe the reality is he died and this is him dreaming (laughs) he's he's dreaming about it. it's like the end of titanic or something but um yeah he's always you know where he's He's made a mistake and he's just getting another chance. And and this is, you know, we see the hell part of this. You know, he's stuck here forever. Yeah. But then we see that at the end, it's like you got all these different pathways in a day or in a, a moment where you can kind of make all these decisions and you make all the decisions and then one goes wrong and completely ruins the whole day. And this time he's got them all right. He's got them all lined up. He does everything right. You know, because there's something, there's probably a different version of this day where he forgot to save the guy from choking or he didn't give the WrestleMania tickets to the, the young couple yeah. or something. When, and he's like, oh, God, if only I'd done that. And then he's back and he gets to do it again the next day. But he has to relive it all again. Yes. So, um, yeah. It's quite interesting it's... that For Weds and Funeral came out so soon after this one. Because if it hadn't have come out so soon, then I would have wondered whether this one had had a bit of an effect on that one because not only does it have the same leading lady, there's also something about the way Hugh Grant wakes up to that alarm clock each time 
and then goes along to a wedding. And I know that they're different weddings. It's not time repeating itself. It's not a time traveling movie, but there's something about the kind of monotony. That's part of what makes it a good romantic comedy for when it's, it's, it sort of shows the monotony of weddings to a degree that they're all kind of cut from the same cloth a little bit that um that you know if you're if you're someone going along to them there can be a kind of groundhog day-esque aspect to that <laughs> uh so it's yeah it's there's obviously something about those movies because also um we've talked about doing back to the future at some point haven't we and that obviously has has things about it that are kind of similar to this one too yeah because it's all about you know the lessons you must learn like don't interact with your future self because it will completely warp the future and this is like everything he does while it gets him out of his time warp you know he's now on a path that he wasn't on before yeah so you know is he in the biff is donald trump version or is he in the the normal version yes uh, which is a weird way of putting it. Um, <laughs> but um but yeah you know and and again you know at what point has the universe changed or is the you know or is this just all in his head and he's you know we'll find out that he's mentally ill or he's gone through some kind of eternal sunshine or total recall procedure where his brain has been permanently altered one thing i did write down and, and this was more of a rubbish attempt at a joke was um how we've talked in episodes around who holds the cards and and while and I know we've disagreed on this in the past as well yes um but no while because the film is from Phil's point of view and this is his film and his story and 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 everyone else is kind of a a player in his play um he does throw the cards away quite a lot when he throws them into the hat Be like when Harry did it and when Harry met Sally again, he's although he's bored then and, and throwing them into the hat just to pass the time. Yes. Yes. I, I heard that there was some tension between Andy McDowell and Bill Murray on the set of this film because she would take so long getting her hair done and <laughs> that would really annoy him and that he gave her a terribly hard time for that. And... Um, yeah, I was wondering whether, do you think that's why he throws that hairdo insult at his fellow presenter because of <laughs> Maybe. that tension? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it does sound like, you know, I know you mentioned it earlier that, that him and Harold Ramis fell out and I think they didn't really reconcile until before, just before Harold Ramis died. Mm. Um, and this was kind of the catalyst for it. But um, which is a shame because obviously the, some of the best things that Bill Murray did was, was with him. Yeah, it's so interesting how that can sometimes happen on these comedy films where you wouldn't expect it to at all. Uh, I think on the Pink Panther movies, Blake Edwards and Peter Sellers were constantly clashing in a way that was incredibly difficult for everyone to cope with. And um, it's so strange to think of because those films are so incredibly funny. And then it's like with this one as well, you wouldn't think when you're watching it, would you, that there was all of that friction going on behind the scenes between people but sometimes that must be just where kind of creative when people are sort of challenging each other and sometimes that can be where something really good happens I suppose. But especially when you're doing a comedy is that you know it's so easy to get comedy wrong same with a stunt in an action film or a dramatic set piece it's still trying to make that funny yeah. and trying to get the funny especially out of a film with so much death and so much gloom and so much misery and yet it's a comedy yes and it's a romantic comedy you know and you're sitting there thinking right okay well you know there, there is a lot of pressure on that and um and, and ultimately you know we're, we're left with a film that's very much seen as a modern classic and and like you said like sliding doors it's transcended the film everyone knows groundhog day is kind of a a, a version of just my miserable ever everlasting life and <laughs> yeah. every day is the same it does have some lovely it, that's the interesting thing about it it's got um it's got these moments of darkness but then it's got some really nice seasonal romantic kind of holiday classic movie kind of moments in it like i really like the moment where they're dancing on the bandstand in the snow 
And um, I'm quite a sucker for those kind of things. It sort of feels like it's kind of harking back to the sort of Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers era of filmmaking. And so even though they're kind of wearing their very 90s anoraks and stuff, um, they've got that kind of nice bit of romance in the middle of it, which I really like. Caters for all audiences. Yeah, they they know when to introduce a bit of music into the into the film or a bit of dancing like that in a way that's good. And there's a snowball fight, always like a snowball fight as well. There's a good snowball fight in the preacher's wife. That's a bit something I like. I like a snowball fight in a film. <laughs> so if you were to pick your perfect day to be stuck in, it would be one where there's a snowball fight and a diner that has plenty of uh, pancakes and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the snowball fight is is good, isn't it? Because you can show you have that playful thing of people being able to kind of tussle around and and there being a bit of friction, but not in a dark way. And um, yeah, no one gets hurt. It's all it's all good. It's all good. You might get frozen fingers. You might get frozen <laughs> other things. But yeah, it's all fine. Phil, Phil Connors. I thought it was you, Ned Ryerson. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I have missed you so much. I don't know where you're headed, but can you call in sick? Uh, <laughs> I gotta get going. Uh, it's good to see you, Phil. I think, again, in that sliding doors way, although this is a lot more, I suppose, a lot more popular and well regarded than sliding doors yeah, as a better film, film than anyway. Sliding but... doors, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel. It's um, I, I think that there's that relatability to it that people can kind of come back and watch it over and over again and see something different. Um, and and you do kind of follow him on a journey. And and I know Gwyneth Paltrow has a haircut and you know starts stops delivering sandwiches and stuff. But um, I think here there, there's more. There is that comedy and and you do see him do this stuff but it is not all saccharine you know it's not too heavy yes sorry it is too heavy at times and and it's they've just about got that balance right where you know he also does other stuff he doesn't just do it to fall in love with andy mcdowell you know he, he does it because it makes him in theory a better guy and the people who join him on this journey enjoy the new bill murray Yes, I see. So it it becomes kind of more like a, a, a film, something like A Christmas Carol or mm. It's a Wonderful Life, where it feels very like a Christmas film in that way, in the sense that, as you say, even though you have a love story at the centre of it, it's kind of about that thing of someone being able to get their head around the idea of there being other people around him so he can think about their feelings and their lives as well as his own and that that's a lovely thing to aspire to mm-hmm. i think so yeah um how do we feel about fudge i like fudge but i hope you're not taking notes <laughs> <laughs> i wonder what happens um to nancy in the end there's something about, like one of the last things we, we have to see larry saying to her would you be interested in seeing the back of a van which isn't Nice, is it? Yeah. That just good. sounds awful it these does days, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. I mean, it sounded seedy then. It now just sounds downright dangerous. Yes, I I might be remembering this wrongly, but um, that actress uh, played um one of Jerry's girlfriends in Seinfeld, and I think he dumps her because it turns out that she used to go out with Newman, and that Newman dumped her <laughs> rather than her dumping Newman, and that bothers Jerry so much that he finishes with her. And I think, like, oh God, <laughs> she's like <laughs> that. Sounds like the sort of thing that would happen. Yes, yes, completely. She does. Or she has that uh, that air of someone who's been out with Jerry Seinfeld at some point. Yes, yes, I I know what you mean. So you mean basically that she has the air of an actress in the early nineties, <laughs> just <laughs> any actress at all. <laughs> She's been typecast. Yeah, completely. completely. Uh, so do we think that this is um, one of the best time traveling relationships that we've seen, or that you have seen in a movie? Um. I think so, because I think, and again, this probably because we've seen enough of him on this journey, journey, um, where he's got it right, eventually. Whereas, you know, Back to the Future, he's trying not to get off with his mum, or in Total Recall, it's something different, or you know, all these um, 
other time travel films where a relationship isn't necessarily the, the main part of the story. Yeah. And I think here, that again, like you said earlier, they've got the balance right. But I do wonder, I mean, I haven't seen like the time traveller's wife or anything like that. You know, I don't know how that, how that would go. But um, I mean, what you say, I'm basing everything on Back to the Future, Back to the Future and Total Recall and Inception, where I think the guy's wife dies, which probably isn't really romantic but uh but yeah i think this one works so well in that context but um unless you've got a better option for me to go off and do my homework and explore another time traveling relationship movie uh well of course we we have done eternal sunshine on this podcast so if people want to go and check out that episode i think that that uh that movie kind of takes a bit of inspiration from something like groundhog day and then kind of goes in a direction where they think okay well what if what if the boat what if both the characters are quite deeply flawed people how are they gonna try and do this rather than just one of them being deeply flawed <laughs> which is what this film was well as we knock back another sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist and sit down at the piano we leave you with a question What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? Start a podcast? I've been Kat. I've been Rich. And this has been Don't You Want Me. my ring